You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Our group sat down with Kendall Hoyt, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Dartmouth Medical School, who is an expert on biodefense and global health policy. She also currently serves as an advisor to the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and is a former fellow with the Belfer Center's International Security Program. You're a professor of medicine, but you don't have a medical degree. And I thought that if you want to be a professor of medicine, you got to have a medical degree. How did you pull that off? Or does nobody know? <laughs> do I just look it's not a bag? state secret, no. no. Um, I have my faculty appointments in the medical school, but I teach in the engineering school. Um, and I am neither a doctor nor an engineer. Yeah, okay. What's going um, on? It's, it's a casualty of my interdisciplinary education okay. at MIT, which really supported that. And this and, was a PhD in, it was in something medical uh, related or? Yes, it was in um, the history of um, science and technology, okay. basically. But I, I was even more interdisciplinary than that. Yeah. So I had one advisor in that program one advisor at the Sloan School and one advisor in the Security Studies program. So you were um, all over the place. Do you consider yeah. yourself more, I mean, because all these academic departments sometimes you know, often exist in these silos if you're a historian or a social scientist or a you know, medical person or, I mean, and you teach at the engineering school or an mm -hmm. engineer. Do you, do you ever feel like one or the other or is it just you feel like you're wearing four or five different hats all the time? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, everyone promotes interdisciplinary education. Yeah. It's a good thing, you know, and I think it makes you um, well equipped to be able to apply scholarship to real world problems. But it does not equip you for the university environment, which is highly specialized like and stove piped. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there is no clear path for promotion gotcha. if, you know, you, you sort of relevant to all things yeah. and yet it you don't Master fit none, in, they... in any one category in a way that people recognize um and so that's very challenging um you study let's get to your your research topics there's a biosecurity mm -hmm. biodefense and infectious diseases mm -hmm. what are infectious diseases why are they important why should we care about them um well i mean there's many flavors i mean the ones you need to really be concerned with from, you know, a security standpoint are things that have um, high rates of person-to-person -person transmission. So that's what we worry about when we talk about pandemic flu, like the one that happened at the end of World War I, which is exactly 100 years ago 19, yeah. this year. Mm -hmm. And it took between 50 and 100 million lives around the world around the world um and that was a natural event are you more fearful of of bioterrorism or just nature you know naturally occurring outbreaks i am more concerned with naturally occurring outbreaks it's scarier than bad actors i mean bad it could happen yeah um it has happened and there's no reason that it shouldn't happen the tools for deliberate attacks are getting better all the time and technological trajectories being what they are and people being who they are, it could very well happen. But um, we don't need a bad actor to have a massive event. What do we do to protect against these sorts of things? Uh, how long does it take to, to develop a vaccine when this happens? A couple weeks? Um, on average, a new vaccine takes 10 years. 10 years. One decade. 
yeah. to a new to a new outbreak or some sort of yeah. disease. That we, yeah, or it was significant lag time. You need vaccines immediately. So we, we did what that was the case for uh, the Ebola outbreak and the flu, of course, we deal with every year. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the difference between those and other sorts of general outbreaks? So the big well, with flu, we reformulate every year. It's a it's a strain change. Um, with Ebola, the big lesson there was if we have something in the pipeline, which we did because we were worried about Ebola as a potential bio threat. Oh, we'd already been studying. So we'd been investing in an Ebola vaccine. Um, we had when there's something in the pipeline, then you can test it mm-hmm. in an outbreak. But if you don't have anything in the pipeline, you are now at the mercy of basic science which is not something that is subject to a timeline. How do we even think about these things? Is it, is it inevitable that we'll have some sort of outbreak that we've never thought of before? The demand for these sorts of things, a strange market, the demand for these sorts of things happens at a point when it's already too late, right? So how does anyone ever prepare for these right. things? I mean, this is the essential problem. You know, outbreaks can happen rapidly and with no warning. Mm-hmm. And vaccines can take 10 years to make. And the market does not drive industry to develop vaccines for diseases that we cannot predict. Yeah. Uh, so that's your inherent problem. Um, and so the challenge is, what can we do to circumvent that? And um, one of the things that we're doing through CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, is we're working with the WHO R&D Blueprint to identify those diseases that have the highest epidemic potential, and then also pair that with, well, which one of those diseases has a technologically feasible vaccine possibility, and then develop those, create a pipeline preemptively, such that when there is an outbreak, you've got something to test. No, but what uh, in the world of diseases, there have got to be tons of diseases to worry about. Do we just have to resign to the idea that we're never going to be ahead of the game? We can never be ahead of the game. I don't think so. I mean, so that you're talking about the pathogen X scenario. So that sounds like fancier than I think I yeah. would come up so with. So the okay, WHO has yeah. has that on their list, pathogen X, and that is an acknowledgement of the fact that you know to think that we could pick these is hubris. You know, we had SARS. SARS came out of the blue. Right. How do you prepare for that? And that is the million dollar question, and we're working on that. There are um, vaccine development platforms where you can have sort of a pre-made testable delivery vehicle and with a changeable payload that you then adjust to whatever the emerging pathogen is. And we're working on different technological platforms that would allow you to do that, you know, within 16 weeks of identifying the target antigen to having something that's ready to test in the field. That would revolutionize outbreak response. And that's possible. We're working on it. It's just, a, is it a matter of money or is it a matter it's of... It's a matter of development. So it's, you know, it could take 10 years to develop, but we do have feasible technological platforms. And who's we? That, we, we means the, the industry, well, the field, the um, government, private these industry. These do exist in industry, They're, um, but they haven't been developed. They're a long-term high-risk R&D um, initiative. And one of the exciting things about CEPI is we're able to put some capital behind that, you know, have a long-term patient investment in that because it is high risk and there is, you could have some failures along the way, but it's a worthwhile investment because that is one of the few things that would absolutely change the landscape for outbreak response. One of the things I get from your writing is that uh, up until now or up in, 
or is that when, when, when an outbreak happens, um, it's sort of a chaotic response. Everything's just, there's a loose network of people who are tr immediately trying to come together to deal with this problem. And one of the things you say is that we can organize better. It's a coordination problem. It's not just financial, it's coordination institutionally. So can you tell me a little bit more, more about that? And, and what are the ways that we can, you know, uh, that the response can be better instead of preemption in some way that it's also about a, a much quicker uh, response right. time. Right. I mean, and that's, that is a really important point. I mean, you can be, you can have a time lag for scientific reasons and that's forgivable. But if you have a time lag in outbreak response for administrative delay, that's unforgivable. That is a dumb reason. And it um, happens. It, oh, absolutely it happens. Um, contracting can take up time. Yeah. Um, the, one of the things that took a lot of time with Ebola was trying, we argued a lot about clinical trial protocols. And, you know, so the question is, what can we do in advance to really reduce these administrative delays? Can we get provisional agreement on a regional basis on 80% of a protocol? And then when there's an outbreak, go and tweak that remaining 20% to the specifics of the circumstances? We should try. Are, are there international agreements yeah. that way, or is this is this is what is this happening is, now? This, these are some of the institutional reforms that are coming out of our the lessons that are coming out of the Ebola experience, um, and we're working on it. What else did we learn from Ebola? That's a good question. Well, what did we learn from Ebola? Um, well, we learned that it's useful to have something in the pipeline. Um, then you you can actually start to launch. A response on a timeline if you have something on the pipeline. Um, we learned the need for greater global governance of this. So CEPI really was a, a reaction to that. So we had this, you know, ad hoc coalition of, you know, willing companies and they got burned. I mean, they put capital at risk and um, it was very disruptive to ongoing R&D that they already had. And so they have a vested interest and the global health community has a vested interest in having a more sustainable and efficient vehicle to conduct R&D for epidemics, uh, epidemic diseases. And so that's what CEPI's trying to do. And so we pool funds, we allocate resources. So it's not this, you know, land grab for, you know, which candidate you know, and which trial site, you know, we're going to try to, working with the WHO, try to create a more rational approach to that when there is an outbreak with a new pathogen. Is it difficult to work with private industry here? I mean, because intuitively to me, I, I think I read a Stat News article about how drug makers were less excited about joining the emergency vaccine market because they know there's an end date. I mean, if they develop a successful vaccine, and they solve the problem and they spend millions of dollars developing this vaccine, then it ends after that and there are no profits. I mean, there's the moral issue, of course, whether or not they should be doing this, but, but financially, how, how do you convince a, a private industry? Yeah, I mean, the economic argument for doing it is not great. The political argument for doing it is unavoidable. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the, we are structured such that all of the, um, expertise, skills, and resources for late-stage development, manufacturing, and regulatory expertise is in the private sector. So we have to sort it out. Um, and that's 
the idea behind SEPI is to, you know, can we negotiate a contract in advance with a competent manufacturer such that we do have something that's ready for testing? Do these drug makers, are the drug makers usually willing to step forward when an outbreak happens? When it comes to a, a crisis like this, are, are, they, are they the ones that do, that do end up stepping up? Well, they did. Yeah. I mean, they absolutely did during Ebola. Um, we've, it, it's, it's nuanced and it's complicated. Uh, so for Zika, um, Sanofi uh, recently agreed to uh, develop a vaccine that the Army had invested in in exchange for an exclusive license to sell and manufacture that vaccine. And then the issue became, uh, you know, access advocates, you know, like Médecins Sans Frontières and um, U.S. lawmakers said, well, now wait a minute. You know, if you have an exclusive license, you can then charge any price you want for that vaccine. You'll then gouge us, you know, for something that was already subsidized with taxpayer money. Um, and... You know, but at the same time, they were stepping up to develop a vaccine that was in the public interest, you know, that wasn't going to get developed any other way. Um, and so in the middle of that political firestorm, they backed out. So and so now oh, that the development of that vaccine is stalled indefinitely. Wow. So, that's, I mean, well, that's a horrible situation to be in. Yeah. So, I mean, so what's, it's, what's a, next? It's, a, it's a politically fraught situation. I mean, could, um, couldn't, I mean, conceivably, couldn't politicians just say, we'll cap at, at a certain price? Or is that, I mean, why did that have to be the, or was the concern more or greater the idea of just having a monopoly on these sorts of things? So they would ha control all distribution and administration. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to find the right formula of incentives that will both get industry on board and make it politically palatable. Um, you know, drug prices are a hot issue right now. And you can design contracts with um, access provisions, meaning, you know, price and quantity agreements up front. Um, and that's, that's one of the things we're trying to work on so with our contracting. Here's a question. Is the flu more dangerous or are people who don't vaccinate more dangerous? Both. <laughs> <laughs> Both really bad. Both really bad. Yeah, well, what's, what, 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 what is with these, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers? They're a huge health risk. This is a major problem. Um, yeah. How does people in your field, what, 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 how do people react to it? The, we've had anti-vaxxers since colonial era America, Cotton Mather. You know, here in Boston, you know, it was... It's an old issue. It's a very old issue since the beginning of vaccines. What did they think back then? They, they just were afraid it, of There it. was distrust. And it's, it is always, it's such a lightning rod for um, questions of authority and government. And it's a, it's a perfect test of the level of trust in government. And right now, you know, the pendulum has really swung in one direction. I think when you have, I think healthy vaccination campaigns coexist with healthy democracies. All the things that make a democracy work make vaccination campaigns work. Things like um, evidence-based policy, publicly funded research, um, publicly subsidized development and liability caps and funding caps, you know, that make this affordable and accessible. Um, 
strong public health communication you know that's trusted so it's almost like an indicator know. and some social scientists would say this is an this, you know, is, this an is an indicator. indicator of low trust in government that we have such as these anti-vaxxers yeah okay well, here's a, here's another question how did you get interested in biodefense and biosecurity in the first place? You know, were you, as a kid, were you the one just washing your hands more than everybody else after recess? Were you, was your favorite Halloween costume a, fun, <laughs> I don't know, fungus or a parasite or something? How did you get into this? I, I mean, if we're going to go back that far. Yeah. Um, in the fifth grade, my teacher, Mr. Brust, was a retired Marine. And he used to do this thing at the end of the day where he'd turn out all the lights and he'd light a candle on his desk and he'd tell us some story about the real world. And one day, this is in the 80s, he told us about mutually assured destruction oh with God. Russia. Oh God. I think this was like the day before that movie, the day after was supposed to air. Jeez. You know, and they were, he was like trying to prep the kids for like seeing this on TV. Well, that rewired my brain. You're Completely. Like, you're like, the world is a harsh place. I like, from that point forward, I was hyper attuned to existential threats. Wow, you were what, 11, 10 or 11 years old? Yeah. That's an early, that's an early moment. It was an early moment. I was never the same. <laughs> um, and so I was always alert to that. And then um, when I was in graduate school, I was in Japan. And I was sitting in the back of a bus. And I read about Elm Shinrikyo which was the Japanese cult that released yes, sarin in the subway system. In the subways That's in 95. Right. Well, they had also been experimenting with anthrax in like spraying slurry off the top of buildings and so forth. And I thought, well, now there's an existential threat. <laughs> yeah, you know, because, yeah. you know, what if it's something other than anthrax? What if it's something that's transmissible? Mm. You know, what Bill Clinton called biological weapons, the gift that keeps on giving. And so that tripped every wire in my brain. And... So I thought, you know, technological trajectories and biotech and people being the way people are, that this was something I should probably focus on. You're also an historian. You uh, uh, have written about uh, 20th century vaccines. Is there an era in history that you look back on that you say that was, the, that was a golden era of, of American innovation in, in vaccines and, and, and in biodefense? Um, what we were able to accomplish during World War II was extraordinary. What did we accomplish? We pulled together federally run vaccine development R&D programs to respond to war-enhanced disease threats. We pulled in industry and academia and had them working with the government in ways that were unprecedented. Um, we developed a working flu vaccine in two years from initiating the program, which is extraordinary. It was, it was an imperfect vaccine, and we didn't really understand strain changes at that point, but we did have a working flu vaccine. And this was because we were in the middle of a war, a major war, and we worried about the deaths of our military service people? Is that, was that the kind of Yeah, well, we were impetus? worried in that another world war would generate the epidemiological conditions for another pandemic, as it did at the end of World War One. And so this was a very genuine concerted threat. We were also worried about um, deliberate threats. Um, we developed a botulinum toxoid in anticipation of D-Day because we were worried that the Germans were going to load V-1 bombs with the toxin. Right. And the primary um, concern, of course, was the fact that military service people would be uh, 
prey to uh, to these sorts of attacks. Right. So how, is there a way that we can get back to that? I mean, of course, we don't want to get back to World War II, but yeah. do we, is there a way to get back to that sort of spirit of innovation within science? Is there a way to get there without having to be involved in a world war? Or do you kind of see right. that as a necessary, was it necessary? No, it will, but it was a catalyst. And in fact, what happened after World War II was the true golden era. You know, in mid-century R&D, a lot of um, Walter Reed, the Walter Reed Army Institute for Search, really invested in infectious disease research because of where troops were deployed. Um, and they had labs overseas, and they were known as the place where the best and the brightest would go to study infectious diseases. And they were allowed, it wasn't highly academic, it was applied. So go and develop a vaccine for this. And that's what they were rewarded for. And they were interdisciplinary and integrated and, um, it became a center of excellence and it, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then the best people want to go there. Um, and so, that it does require that sort of culture. Um, after Vietnam, you know, we started to divest of a lot of those skills and capabilities. We started to let go of a lot of our overseas labs, and a lot of these people moved into industry. And then, you know, we saw a center of excellence in industry for a while, but then there was no engine for this again. So it it became the NIH, mm. which was very good at basic science, but it didn't support this interdisciplinary, integrated, applied research that is what gets vaccines made. And and you've also written that the number of vaccines after World War II has declined, not yeah. increased, which was a sort of, inter I mean, kind of counterintuitive. Counter you would think yeah. that they would increase because the more that we took these things seriously. So how do we, how do we get back to that time? What, what, what is, what do we need? Um, I think one factor that's really changed was industry was felt like they had a public duty to participate in vaccine research. Vaccines were understood as a public good. People recognized their strategic value from a national security point of view, and they understood their public value from a public health point of view, and they felt it was part of their job to help get some of these vaccines developed. Um, you know, companies were, you know, at the time had a little more leeway in making some of those decisions. Now there's much more driven by shareholder interests and short-term returns, and they don't quite have the same freedom to make those investment decisions that they had in the past. Well, let's hope we can get back there. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.